0: Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host and interviewer each week where on Tuesdays and Fridays we release carefully curated episodes both in audio and video with the single intention of making you a better leader. Franklin Covey, of course, the world's most trusted leadership development firm. We try every week to shine our mega mega spotlight onto thought leaders that are both internal to the organization and, like today, external, that all share a commonality. They have a discipline, a practice, a research, a life experience set in helping you become a better leader, whether that is a better leader in your organization, in your school, in your not-for-profit, in your government organization, perhaps it's the military, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, or you're retired, or your side hustle is something that is taking a second seat to your family, no doubt you want to be a better leader as well. Today's guest is, in my estimation, one of the world's leading thought leaders on the idea of hospitality. He calls it unconscious hospitality. He has led some of the most iconic hotel brands in the world, whether it was from Miami to New York, from Texas to Hong Kong, from Hawaii to Spain, where he is today joining us from his home. His name is David Araya, and unlike many of us who vacation or wish to vacation in Ibiza, it's where he lives. David Araya, welcome to On Leadership.
1: Hi, Scott, thank you very much. I'm honored to be here with you.
0: David, let's get one thing straight. I don't think anybody really knows how to pronounce Ibiza. I I hear it called Ibiza, Ibiza. (laughs) Can you, for once and for all, educate us on the proper way to pronounce what is now your home to you, your wife, and your three children?
1: Sure, I think it all depends where you're from uh, as well. So, uh, you know, many people will call it Ibiza, uh, but the actual way to pronounce it here in Spain is Ibiza.
0: Ibiza, welcome. Uh, Thank you for the clarification. David, I have followed your career for the better part of a half decade. You have led some of the most iconic properties in the world for some of the most prestigious hotel brands, whether it was Fountain Blue in Miami, uh, you've worked at the Pierre in New York City. You've been in uh, multiple properties associated with both Four Seasons and Auberge. Most recently, you were a leader of the Six Census property in Spain. You've worked for many hospitality groups. Would you rewind a little bit? I'd love for our listeners and viewers to kind of follow your career on how you got started, where you were born, where you went to school, and remind us of some of the trajectories that you've been on the last 20 years of your hospitality career. And today, we're gonna to focus in on what is your passion, leadership and unconscious hospitality, and how every leader can make that part of their skill set in their own organization.
1: Sure, Scott, thank you very much. Um, so, I've had the privilege of living all over the world, as you mentioned. Uh, when I started my journey leaving Bolivia, where I'm actually from, I had no idea that this is the way that it would work out. I uh, went to an American high school in La Paz, Bolivia. I'm the fifth of six boys. My household was always crazy, full of people all around. So. I was always in an environment where I was taking care of people. Um, I was always the kid that would uh, invite my friends over or cling to my older brother's friends and just want everybody to be having a good time. I would be checking the music to make sure it was what everybody wanted. I would come by with, with food and drinks and I always wanted everybody to have a good time. So ever since I was a very young kid, hospitality was, was within me and in my blood. Um, and my parents fostered just that community environment, our household, we, we actually called it a hostel more than, than a home. So um, then uh, not knowing what I wanted to do uh, after high school, I actually did a went for a cultural exchange program in the south of France where I ended up in a resort environment. Um, and so I took a job as a bartender inside this uh, resort and slowly uh, but Surely, I started doing more and more and more jobs within the resort, um, from housekeeping to cleaning and maintenance. And um, uh, the, the department that I loved most was recreation, which was all the uh, fun activities over the summer and taking the kids to the different tours around the city. Um, so it was always something that I knew that attracted me, but it, I had no idea it would be my, my career for the rest of my life. Um, You fast forward um, a few years, I returned to Bolivia right after the cultural exchange program. And I went um, to South Carolina for a uh, soccer scholarship, um, knowing that I wanted to study hospitality. So I studied hospitality um, at the University, uh, Winthrop University in South Carolina, that's where I met my wife. Um, And then from that moment on, I'd done two internships over the summer, one at a country club, one at a restaurant, and I knew exactly that I wanted to be in hotels, and that that was my purpose and my in my vision. So I took off, where would you go if you want a career in hotels? You go to New York City. Um, and that's where I ended up. I uh, landed a job at the Pierre in New York City, where I was wearing a double-breasted suit, thick tie, um, you know, a corner of, of uh, 61st and 3rd, iconic property. And I led the opening of that property in a front office manager role. Um, you know, I was lucky enough that I started my career in a leadership role uh, right out of university because I'd done this internship um, and the and this cultural exchange program. And so I went for uh, a big leap in taking this leadership role. And uh, and then from then on, my career just took me all over the world. So from the Pierre in New York City, I moved to Fountain Blue, Miami Beach, uh, completely different approach, right? from the double breast thick tie, I went to managing uh, one of the world's most successful nightclubs uh, and running their nighttime operations and then going into the different disciplines within the, the rooms division. Um, And then after a while of being in Miami, uh, my son was born and I I needed a change. I wasn't really aligning with the way that the hotel vibed and what they, what they did in terms of activity. And I needed something a little bit more wholesome. Um, So I decided to, to make a change and that's when Hong Kong came about. I worked for Swire hotels. uh, It's part of a, a bigger conglomerate from Hong Kong called Swire properties. And I worked for them in Hong Kong. I did two years of brand immersion and operation there. And then I, brought the brand to the United States, back to Miami, um, and uh, we opened East Miami. Uh, From there, I joined Four Seasons, iconic uh, company, and really the brand that I wanted to join from the very beginning of my career, and I had the opportunity to do that in Lanai, which is a tiny island in Hawaii, um, and a few years later to transfer to uh, their property in Austin, Texas, um, in the role of hotel manager. Um, From there, uh, I I decided, uh, thanks Thanks to COVID, I say, because uh, that I had a major pivot moment at that time. Uh, I ended up with Auberge, um, moving to um, Aspen, Colorado, to run their property there for two seasons. Um, after that, going to uh, the Playa, Playa del Carmen or Riviera Maya in Mexico to open their, their third resort in Mexico, um, and then got recruited uh, by the ownership group at Six Senses in Ibiza. To, to join them um, here in this magical island that I can now call home. So, it's been quite a journey um, uh, and uh, I'm incredibly grateful for every single step that I've been able to take.
0: David, thank you for that. I, I mentioned that, uh, I asked you to go through that lineage because I think you're the next Hort Schultze, the next Will Gudar, when it comes to the future of hospitality on the on mm-hmm. the shoulders of giants, if you would say. You've worked with and led some of the most iconic brands in the industry of hospitality, What's common, whether, whether you're at you know, a, a, a four star, five star, does a six star exist? What are some of the common principles that leaders in the hospitality industry make ubiquitous across the culture?
1: Yeah, the, the number one commonality is, is actually quite simple, and that's people. That we're working with people, through people, for people. It's a, a people industry, and we can now see with the way that technology is reshaping industries, that we are the one industry that can, to a certain extent, remain intact um, because of the people element. So whether I was leading a team with the aloha spirit in Lanai, Hawaii, or I was uh, running a team in Hong Kong with a completely different approach or a very different paradigm, at the end of the day, all the people that we were dealing with were human, and they had fears and they had vulnerabilities and they um, had ambitions and goals and so being able to tap into the human side uh, really was the the, the common factor that led to my success throughout these very different uh, experiences.
0: David, you might argue it's easy for things to go well but more difficult when things go poorly. I'm sure that the hospitality industry at the five-star level of which you've mastered things go well because of systems and structures and processes and recruitment and training and training and training. When something goes bad, when there's an opportunity for service recovery, whether someone is in healthcare or technology or manufacturing or whatever their role is, what are some of the things you've learned around turning a potentially bad customer experience and applying what you might think are a series of methodologies around service recovery Give us maybe an example or two of how that's worked for you and can be applied in any situation.
1: Sure. Um, It it actually really is the, the beginning of this idea of conscious hospitality and why I really believe that this is not only the way of the now, the moment that we're in right now, but of the future as well. And it's the idea that human beings don't necessarily like surprises, right? And so when you have a problem that goes wrong in a hotel, We'll call it an opportunity, a glitch or a mistake, whatever whatever the verbiage or the language is. There is a process in order to recover that guest or that customer, right? And it really deals with being as proactive as possible in getting in front of that person and, first of all, providing a sense of empathy and compassion and saying, I'm so sorry for what you were going through um, to the biggest extent possible to try to put yourself in that person's shoes or to share a common story of something that's gone wrong for you or that you've dealt with in the past, Um, but also just to say, I'm sorry, and to take responsibility. I think that's truly um, something that is easy to say, harder to do. But when you're living in a more conscious, intentional way, taking responsibility is much easier because you realize that um, things are within your control, without of your uh, out of your control. But at the end of the day, uh, you have to be the one that's going to make that situation better for the guest. And they're in your space, right? And you're holding that space for them. And so you are the one that has not only the tools, but also the options for those people to be able to go back into the. Control that they're looking for when they uh, when they're living, you know. And so I think this idea of taking responsibility and being as proactive and as honest as possible uh, with what the situation is and how you can help them get out of it uh, is what really will help. Uh, first of all, diffuse the situation because people come in hot, and so when you come in and you say, "I'm sorry," and you simply say, "I'm sorry," and you don't go on and on and on about what the excuses are, but you say, I'm sorry that you're going through that, it automatically will diffuse people. And then when you come in with options uh, and alternatives in order to make the situation better, you get them back into that control and the situation gets better from there.
0: David, I have followed you on LinkedIn for the better part of five or six years, as has the entire hospitality world. And you've demonstrated something that I think is extraordinarily valuable and replicable. You don't burn bridges. You maintain relationships with anybody and everybody that you've worked with. Certainly, we all have situations that have gone wrong. and We've, you know, moved on in our life. But I have watched you with extraordinary speed land new opportunities, not just for yourself, but as a matchmaker for others. One of your passions is putting, you know, Tina and Tom together on two different continents to work together. I think a central theme of your brand is relationships. Remind us how important that is and are there some things that you do as part of your governing values as a conscious or unconscious hospitality leader that everybody should be reminded of?
1: Yes, Um, I mean, it is the human business. It is the human connection to me. uh, It has been my biggest strength, I would say, in the fact that I love, really love connecting with people and there's nothing that gives me bigger satisfaction than watching somebody go into a relationship and thrive. And so matchmaking is truly something that I'm passionate about uh, in the sense that uh, you know, when you bring two people together that are like-minded or you bring one person into an organization and that person thrives, it's like a fire that just gets bigger and brighter and that helps everything around it shine. So to me, it's, it's a truly important part of our business. Um, I learned this very early on from a mentor of mine who said, you never close doors. You never burn bridges. Every single time that you walk out, you walk out with integrity. You walk out with honesty. You walk out with having had a conversation. Um, You know, when you're jumping from brand to brand, it's not always easy, right? Every time you end a relationship, it's kind of like a divorce. You have to go through a process. And some processes are easier. Some are a little bit more complicated. But at the end of the day, um, it's it's about really uh, expressing the reasons and expressing um, what the intentions are, because sometimes, you know, the, the impact that you have uh, doesn't necessarily match the intentions you had. And so sometimes you can clarify that by really being um, intentional about why you're making these changes and why you're bringing people together. Um, and, and the other piece that I would say to this is just constantly building a network, right? And and it's in the moments when you don't need people that you should be working twice as hard to build that network um, and to Provide whatever value you can to individuals. You know, I remember during COVID, there were a few of us in the hospitality industry that were really just boosting positivity and saying, "Hey, we're going to be okay," uh, even though everybody around us was losing jobs and was closing hotels. And you know, it was a really tough time. But because of that positivity that we were sharing, people had faith and, and continued on. And if you look at them now, they're all thriving. And you know, they're all happy to lend a hand in whatever way they can as well. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, industry, our industry is based on that. It's based on an abundance mentality. It's based on uh, growth for everyone um, and, and, uh, and that human connection that we're talking about.
0: Let's talk about the future of work. As I have followed you on LinkedIn and read articles, seen you speak around the nation. You do some consulting with different brands as well. You're kind of a free agent right now by choice. It seems that you've become really passionate about curating a workplace that is an attractive environment for the next generation of leaders, of independent contributors that may have different values than the owners or the historic leaders of a company, the executive team, maybe a clash of cultures, a clash of of generations. For all those that are listening and watching that are my age, perhaps they're on the second half of their career and they're either frustrated or they're excited about what do I do and they don't know what to do, what are some practical ideas you might give our listeners and viewers around building a workplace that is inclusive with high accountability that becomes a place where the younger generation wants to thrive and stay and refer their friends and family and colleagues to work in? It's a long question, but I know it's a a topic you're passionate about.
1: Incredible passion of mine. Um, Over the past few months, I've realized more and more how frustrated the the leaders of today, and particularly the people in the executive suite, are um, of of the new generation. And they're calling them lazy and unloyal, and they don't really understand them. And I was one of those leaders as well. and, and every single time that I would watch one of these messages, it, it came to my head, we need to be able to find a solution to this problem. It cannot be that that there are so many problematic employees coming into the world. Um, and then I put, flipped the problem on its head and I realized maybe the problem is not the employee and is not the new generation, but it's the systems and processes and way of working that we actually still have in today's day and age, right? And if you look at many of the industries, I relate most to hospitality, of course, if you look at hospitality, it's still a highly hierarchical industry, a highly hierarchical business, very much still step-by-step mentality. Um, Roles and responsibilities are assigned to people based on two or three character traits, but there isn't a very... uh, well thought through process of what is this person all about? What is the, the holistic image of this individual, right? What do they care about? What are their values? What are they good at? What are they not good at? How do they learn? So to me, the future of teamwork is really taking this idea that authority is no longer driven by knowledge, right? Before, when you wanted to be the boss, you needed to be the person that knew how to do everything, right? Or you at least had to know the why of everything. Now, if you want to be the boss, it, you have to have a different attachment to your, in, to, to your teams, right? It's no longer a, um, a knowledge-based attachment um, because now people can go online and go on Google and find 5, 10, 15, 30 different ways of attacking the problem you want them to attack. And so when you challenge them on why did you do it this way, They look back and they say, well, because Google told me that I can do this or ChatGPT told me that I can do it these different ways. And guess what? I saved you money and I saved you time. Right. So knowledge is no longer the number one gauge of um, of authority. Right. And so because now we're challenging authority um, and at the same time, we are digital natives. Right. So. We need to adapt to those two big changes in the generation. And what that means is giving people more time, more flexibility. Um, You know, I think uh, I was reading an article that says that currently only five percent of the working population has a second job or a side gig or a side hustle, but by 2030 it will grow to 30 plus percent of the of the working population. So if we don't get ahead of that and allow for those type of situations to happen, um, then we're just going to get stuck behind, and people are going to do their own thing, right? And loyalties truly going to go out the window. And so for me, we need to start thinking about a, a different model that's not hierarchical, that's more network-based, that's more um, really focused on skills and responsibilities. So really assessing what are the skills that people have, and then how can we help them up-level the skills they don't have, and then um, how can we put them in in teams and networks that can actually fulfill all the responsibilities that we require as an organization so it's a it's 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 that's a kind of tiny uh, kind of scratching the surface of of a much bigger uh, idea um, that goes down authority and goes down relationship building and human connection and bonding um, that, that i'm really excited to continue working on and sharing with the
0: world david last week we interviewed david brooks who's the famous american political opinion columnist, journalist, he wrote a book that I think is a seminal book called How to Know a Person. It's a fantastic interview about connecting with people. Uh, you're writing a book about the future of teamwork, but I'd like to segment um, an interest uh, that I think you also have, and that's the future of recruitment, the future of interviewing. Whenever I talk with you, you're always in a different city around the world and you're there not vacationing, but you're there with you know 15 interviews for new candidates to come join your hotel chain. When you interview people and you're looking for someone who has the growth mindset, the character, the competence, the empathy to work on a five star property, any insights you would give interviewers, leaders that are looking to uh, hire people that have all those things on their team? What have you learned along the way that helps you attune your instinct to whether this person is right or not to work in your organization? First,
1: you need to have your values very very clearly right what are your non-negotiables when it comes to values and understand that if any of those are not met that's an easy no um outside of that i think you need to be very open-minded and and start really focusing by what are this person's natural traits what is it that really excites them and what is easy for them to do what are the things that energize them and so I like to really ask them, you know, when are you most at ease? When are you most comfortable in your role? In a previous role, tell me what are the areas where you've had the most trouble or where you struggle struggled the most or that you've procrastinated in the most. And that will easily tell you if it's a person that's more experience driven or if it's a person that's more administrative driven. Right. And again, a mistake we make is we put people in boxes and we expect uh, somebody that's extroverted to be extroverted but also amazing at using the computer but also at amazing at looking at the pnl and also amazing at being able to handle tough situations and not everybody is made for all of those things and so if we look at this uh, idea okay these are the things that are natural to them these are the areas where they've gotten very good at but they're not necessarily naturally uh, uh, talented at this or don't it's not not something that necessarily energizes them and then these are the areas that do not energize them, but because of the training they've had, they're experts at it. And then finally, these are the areas that really neither energize them nor uh, are they experts at it. And so if you put them in those quadrants and you start really understanding this is who the person is and this is where we can get the most out of them, um, you can really change the way that you hire. Um, so I would say that was the, that would be the first thing. And I also, I really like to put them under a little bit of pressure during the conversations as well, because... Um, always it, it, I see interviewing as a bit of a romance, right? That first conversation when you take your date out and you're only telling them the good things and you're only telling them the things that, that, that they want to hear. I, I, I go the opposite route, right? I try, try to tell them the, the most difficult parts of the job. I'm, I'm very clear and honest about what are the areas that really um, would not make them successful. And I like to see how they react to those situations, right? Um, so that they don't Necessary. And I like to ask them to do the same thing as well, right? So what are the, the worst parts of, of, of your personality where the parts of your personality that you uh, wouldn't want really to come out during uh, your day-to-day but that have or that could um, so that you can have a very clear open conversation from the very beginning.
0: You have one of the most complicated jobs I know, believe it or not, in the hospitality industry. You are <laughs> daily managing your guests and your customers. Leading your team members and contributors. You're responsible to the operator of the property who may or may not be the owner, who may or may not be the investor. What have you learned about managing multiple stakeholders who all may see things, see some things very similar and some things dramatically different? That can no doubt be fatiguing. What, what have you learned that other people that feel like they're drowning in multiple constituencies can take away from your insights?
1: Yeah, this the definitely been every gray hair that I have in my head is because of one of these situations. Um, it, I, you know, I think the, the first thing is to that clarity is, is the biggest sign of respect, first of all, right? So if there's ever any ambiguity of where the situation stands, it's your duty and responsibility to clarify that. Um, so whether you're managing up or managing down um, and there's any sort of um, uh, ambiguity or, or uncertainty, you need to clarify that and you need to dig deeper, uh, even if it is uncomfortable. Um, the second one is that it will be uncomfortable, that you won't always see eye to eye with people. And one of the things that I've learned is that, um, you know, I really need to uh, stick to my values and my convictions um, because sometimes they will be challenged um, and that not everyone will uh necessarily see things the way that you see them. But again, that's why I think alignment in values is, or at least in in the non-negotiable values, is so incredibly important. Um, And then uh, a a really important lesson that I learned uh, by an incredible leader that I had in the past was um, simply that good news uh, travels via regular mail and bad news travels via FedEx. Um, So anytime you're in a situation where there may be trouble ahead or action needs to be taken, you need to be as proactive as possible in bringing people into the mix rather than trying to shield them and and, and act like a superhero.
0: David, you deal with literally thousands of people on a weekly basis, whether it's vendors or suppliers or employees or guests or leaders. Let's do a speed round. I'm going to pitch you a couple of sentences, and I want you to fill in the blank. Um, Most people just need... Attention. What does that look like, attention?
1: Presence, um, being truly present in front of them, listening more than speaking.
0: Most people get frustrated when...
1: You're not clear with them.
0: People bring their worst selves to work when...
1: They are not given the space to deal with their worst selves. What does that mean? That we don't foster a culture in general of um, vulnerability, a culture of um, humanity, um, and that we don't necessarily acknowledge when people are having a good day and giving them the space to be able to take care of whatever they need to take care of. Um, we don't foster a, a holistic view on, on teams and on people. Um, and we, particularly as leaders, don't lead by example when it comes to showing that. So if you're sick or if you're not at your best, um, you pretend like you are and you snap at people and, and you feel bad about it because you don't want to necessarily tell people that you're having a bad day.
0: People bring them their best selves to work when what? When
1: their purpose is aligned with the work that they're doing.
0: You know an individual contributor is ready to be a leader of people when?
1: When they demonstrate the skills of dealing with people rather than the skills of mastering the tactical work that they're doing.
0: You know someone is burnt out when?
1: Their energy levels are no longer the same as when you saw them at their best.
0: You know when it's best to exit someone from the organization when...
1: They no longer fulfill the responsibilities you need them to and they do not respond to the intentional conversations you have with them. Uh, uh,
0: Let's riff on that and then we'll uh, change topics and finish up. Um, What's your philosophy on on exiting someone? You hear all kinds of things across the litmus scale, right? Is give people multiple chances to recover, uh, as soon as you know it's not right, lower the boom. It's 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 the most humane thing for everyone. Those are kind of two of the opposite ends. What's been your leadership style when it comes to the process of coaching and then exiting someone?
1: I believe everybody deserves second and third chances. Um, I believe that the only time that you're not um, that you shouldn't give those chances is when. You've done something that is so wrong that it is illegal, or that it is highly detrimental to the to the brand and to the company. Everyone makes mistakes. We're all humans. I've made tons of mistakes. Potentially, some mistakes that were highly detrimental to the companies I worked for. Um, but I was given another chance, and in those chances and those opportunities is where I've grown the most, and where I've learned to appreciate my value and appreciate the value of my um uh, of my work uh and, and, and the company that i've been attached to at that time um and it was a watershed moment and so i believe in second chances i believe that we fail to tie skills to responsibilities and it is now a, a big reason why people are not fulfilling those responsibilities because the skills they have aren't necessarily the ones required to fulfill the responsibilities um, I believe that there should be feedback much, much more consistently, uh, openly than once a year um, with a with a peer uh, review or an evaluation. Um, and I believe that um, sometimes people are in the wrong role but are not the wrong people for the organization. And so um, my philosophy is always to try to work with people to understand if their role is really um, the right one tied to the skills that they have. And if it's not, to try to put them in the right role before moving them along.
0: David, you're writing a book coming out in 2025 about the future of teamwork. And you speak some consistently with consistent measure around the world on different topics. When someone hires you for a keynote, what typically are the themes you're talking about that resonate most with audiences?
1: I love to talk about my journey in going from a very distracted leader uh, to somebody that actually was able to look up and realize that I was being distracted, literally distracted by uh, by my phone, literally distracted by dopamine hits, literally distracted by alcohol. Um, so I was not being my best self. Um, and so I like to tell my journey of how I went from being distracted to realizing the opportunity that comes your way as a leader when you stop being distracted and you become present. This is why I talk about conscious hospitality. Uh, Will Guidara has a very similar idea when he talks about intention, right? For me, being conscious is being present is being in the moment is where your attention lies, right? So for me, um, you know, Dr. Joe Dispenza is, is a big influence for me. He says where attention goes, energy flows you want to maximize your energy for the people around you to be able to cause the biggest impact for the people around you. And for me, um, when your attention is dispersed, it's also diminished. And so I realized that if you're truly present, if you're truly conscious and intentional about everything that you do, it will have a bigger outcome. It will have a bigger impact. And the impact that you will have will be aligned with the intention right? Going back to intention and impact. And so um, I like to um, share some relatable stories of my career where I was either distracted on my phone when my son was being born um, and I missed a part of the birth or when I would come home after a long day at work and the first five minutes with my family, I wasn't really present. And when somebody would come to talk to me, I would yell and snap at them. And I know it's something that a lot of parents have to deal with because they come home with the stress of, of the daily duties at work um, and, and some of the tech, tactics and techniques that I've learned throughout my career in order to get out of that situation, right? So whether it's a two three minute meditation in my car before I walk into my home so that I can be truly present, whether it's putting my phone in the kitchen so that I can also be truly present first thing in the morning and go through a proper morning routine and what the impact of these type of actions Um, had in my career and could have in a leader's career, uh, no matter what industry they're working in.
0: David, you mentioned parenting. Uh, Coincidentally, you and I both have three children, similar in age. As you speak to all of the parents or caregivers or aunts or uncles or grandparents that are listening and watching, what are the skills that you think the coming generation, I have a a nine-year-old son, a 12-year-old son and a 13-year-old son, three boys. You have two boys and a girl. Uh, what are the skills they're going to need to thrive in a world that's going to differentiate itself through hospitality? It's not going to be pricing or through process. Those things are going to be always differentiators, but service really is the ultimate luxury, according to your and my friend Colin Cowie. Do um, Do you see the necessary skills aligning with service and hospitality? What's your thought there?
1: I, I very much see that that the, the skills that we have in hospitality are the ones that, that children need today. So children don't need us to teach them how to use technology. They'll learn that on their own and they will be exposed to it no matter how much you try not to. Um, they need to know how to shake somebody's hand, how to say hello, how to be courteous, how to deal with a situation, how to uh, be able to be bored how to be able to sit at a dinner table without having a device in front of them. They need to be able to negotiate and they need to be able to discuss difficult situations. These are all things that only a human can teach you. Um, I think um, we are failing by not putting our kids into these situations, by not allowing them to fail. Um, the the skill of resilience, I think, is incredibly critical. Um, and I think that we... Um, can do much better. As a a generation right now, the people that have children um, should be fostering that and should be fostering human connection and bonding. Um, Fortunately, I think we are seeing a bit of an awakening and a bit of a a desire to to really foster human connection. And I think we need to push on that. Um, and, And finally, the other thing I would say is, I think they also need to start realizing, parents need to start realizing that they're no longer the people that are in charge of their children. At a very young age, kids also lose their attachment to parents because of them being the ones in charge, right? Or being the ones that know it all, right? Um, if you think of elders, you know, wisdom was what really made elders uh, respectable, you know, uh, they were the ones that had all the great stories. They were the storytellers that passed on generation to generation this wisdom and we've lost that because, again, technology can provide us much more wisdom and much more knowledge than than, than humans could ever. And so, it's really important that this idea of attachment um, continues to get fostered, and that parents realize that they're merely guides for for children, and that children are going to grow up much faster than they would like them to. Um, so, they need to maintain this uh, healthy human relationship and to foster. Um, mindfulness and foster gratitude and foster appreciation of the smallest moments so that when technology does come and hit them, they're uh, well shielded and prepared.
0: David Araya, international hospitality icon, future author. We hope to have you back. I mean, where does someone go after you've been living in Spain in Ibiza? Ibiza, Ibiza. What's next for you? What's next for you, sir?
1: I'm excited to, to, honestly, this is the first time in my life, in my career, where I can live anywhere I want in the world. Um, my family and I um, have made the conscious choice of living in Ibiza for, for the time being. Uh, we're very happy uh, with the lifestyle that we have here. Um, so for now, it's uh, really uh, enjoying every moment that we have uh, in this beautiful island and, and being in Europe. Um, and, and who knows? Honestly, it, it's the... it's. Um, we don't we don't think this far out because we've never had been able to think this far out because every two, three years we've made a move. So it's nice to stay put for a little bit.
0: If you are not yet connected to or following David Araya on LinkedIn, you need to do so because it's a constant feed of positivity. He's an energy infuser and weekly sets great articles out and thoughts around how to infuse a paradigm, a mindset of conscious hospitality in your industry. David Araya, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Scott, I really appreciate it.
0: And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.